back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers, and I'm happy to be here with you today. I'm here with my friend... Odie Martinez. Odie, I'm glad, glad to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. <clears throat> I missed last week owing to a head cold that moved into a chest cold, and I was teasing with Odie and Austin Armstrong, our producer, co-producers here in the, uh, in the studio. I've got a little pharmacy here on the stand. I've got cough drops and tissues, and so I think we're good to go for today. I'm happy to be back. I, I missed you guys last week. Um, just by way of introduction, just uh, for orientation's sake, my background is in psychology. I'm a professor of clinical psychology at California Southern University here locally as well as I work as a recovery coach here uh, uh, locally in or Southern Orange County as well, um, including at Beginnings Treatment Centers, and they are our sponsor for today's mm -hmm. presentation, and I'm grateful uh, to them for having us here today. Uh, my background is important here because uh, there's so many different perspectives to take on addiction and recovery, and my own view is that they all have their validity. So if I were a physician, or Odie was, we'd be looking primarily from a biological or medical perspective at addiction and recovery. We do discuss that here, but it's not really my front yard. There are other perspectives as well. For example, in the 12-step program, discussion of addiction recovery is, is framed in terms of addiction being a spiritual problem that requires a spiritual solution. And I believe that that's completely valid as well. And so that's another perspective, and that also enters into our conversations. <clears throat> but my perspective is primarily psychological. And so we look a lot at what are the psychological uh, factors that both uh, uh, lead to the onset of addiction, but also perpetuate it? And also in that line, what kinds of barriers psychologically um, uh, uh, rise up to oppose you know, successful, sustained recovery. One of the topics that we talk a lot about here, and we will again today, is the topic of shame, which is a psychological construct. It really ties into an emotion and a body sense that goes with that, and we'll be unpacking that later today. But shame becomes kind of shorthand for um, emotional barriers that can really stand in the way of successful, successfully navigating uh, recovery, uh, especially if we want to maintain it across time. So my background is a psychological orientation. We will touch on the biological in, um, in most every conversation. We'll certainly touch on the spiritual as well. We'll talk a lot about emotions and relationships because that is my front yard. And uh, we're glad for you to join us today. So I hope that you find value in what we're uh, talking about. I know in our audiences, we, uh, we have those that are in recovery themselves. We have individuals that are contemplating getting into recovery who are currently actively addicted. We have uh, loved ones of both of those groups, and we have uh, treatment providers that that uh, work in terms of supporting people towards recovery. So I want to welcome all of you. I also want to invite you to share questions or comments that you have uh, with Odie and me in real time. Uh, we have our scribe who will magically put up your questions on the screen, Austin. By the way, happy birthday, Austin. Happy birthday. <laughs> <clears throat> I asked him, how does it feel to be 21? He says he's not there yet. <laughs> no, it's great to have you. And Austin, will, will he'll transfer your questions up on the screen where Odie and I can read them and respond to them. So any comments or questions as we go along, I invite that. While I'm thinking of it also to invite you to share this. If you like what you see, share it with friends uh, in real time today, as well as recommend friends to check out our archived videos. We're coming up on a year of weekly videos that are available through Beginnings Treatment Centers. If you look under podcasts there, you can also go on YouTube and look up Ask an Addiction Specialist, and there's a whole uh, cache of, of videos. 
as well as through the Facebook group. Many of you have entered through the Facebook group, Ask Addiction Specialist. So multiple roads to Rome here. Glad to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, by way of review, it's not last week, but two weeks ago, we talked about how it is that, that shame locates itself in, re in relationships. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be extending that today by... Um, uh, reviewing what I call the black hole of shame, and particularly uh, looking at how we can heal the black hole of shame. So we're going we're gonna to talk about black holes. <laughs> we're going to be talking about shame. We'll be talking about uh, skillful means for navigating uh, some of the problems that arise in our relationships. And I hope that you find some use in applying what, what we do today. I usually begin by, by introducing some material. I'll do it in dialogue with Odie. And then I have three or four exercises at the tail end of today's podcast that will require some thought and ideally some journaling that you might do. So if you have a uh, pen and pencil handy and a piece of paper, or if you're working at a computer or have a tablet or something, there'll be a, there'll be a, a segment of time towards the end where you can do some journaling and, uh, and actually also share with us what you wish to um, as we're um, kind of nearing the, the tail end of our podcast. So know that we have some practical exercises. I do that every week. I really want to ground this material in a way that makes a difference for you. So anyway, so uh, by way of introduction, then let's talk about this. First of all, that shame... Uh, we, we need to define shame to start off, and I'm not going to put you on the spot. I did that last <laughs> week. Uh, one of the ways that psychology defines shame is it looks at shame as two sides of a single coin. So let's start with this definition, and then I'll move into some of the material um, uh, that uh, uh, will move towards exercises. <clears throat> psychology talks about shame as, as a double threat. The first threat is the threat to social acceptance. And so if you think about experiences you've had where you've been uh, threatened by being kicked out of a group, that, especially a group that matters to you, it could be family, kin, close, close peer uh, network, uh, some subculture that you belong to. Uh, that's, the first, that's the first part of shame is that it cuts right to the quick in terms of how it is that we're social animals. We require a connection with one another. And if there's a threat to that, that can go right into a highly anxious response. And we've talked about that, how that of all the human emotions, shame is actually correlated with the highest elevations of uh, the stress hormone cortisol. So we're talking about an emotion that has high potential for wreckage emotionally for us. The connection, by the way, to addiction is that stress is the number one trigger for relapse to addiction. So we've got to find some way to deal with stress, manage stress, ideally reduce stress, and we're talking about the most stressful emotion is shame. So the first half of shame is a threat to social acceptance. I said it's two sides of a coin because they are related. The second side of the coin is a threat to self-esteem. Mm -hmm. That is in terms of how I feel about myself. And you can see, if you reflect personally on this, how it is anytime that you've been threatened or actually experienced being rejected by somebody, how hard it is to not go into the other side of the coin, which is feeling bad about yourself in terms of who you are. So there's going to be our working definition for shame today. Threat to social acceptance, threat to self-esteem. Having said that, and I'm going to move to a question to my friend here. Um, psychologists suggest that shame has its origins in our earliest development. And I want to ask Odie, uh, and he doesn't, I have not fed you with answers to this. Why would that be the case? Why would, with what I talked about, threat to social acceptance, threat to self-esteem, why would that locate in our earliest development, literally from birth on, this is a factor in our emotional development? Any thoughts about that? Well, I think because that's mainly where we get um, our ideas and our thoughts and beliefs of what it is to be accepted mm -hmm. by others, not mm -hmm. just uh, not just by family members, but 
you know, friends as well growing up. I think. If you think about it, we probably start off as a blank slate. Yeah. And soon enough, that's that blank slate is being written upon. Mm-hmm. And do we get messages of acceptance? Do we get messages of compassion? Or are the obverse of that, do we get messages of rejection? Do we get mm-hmm. messages of judgment or blame or shame for that matter? The opposite of compassion is really shame. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. Absolutely. We start off just fresh and innocent and a, a blank tablet to be written on. And then our earliest relationships begin to supply the writing. What were you going to say? No, oh, yeah. Uh, no, okay. it's just okay. yeah. 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 Uh, one of the unfortunate uh, uh truths about where we are as a species, as human beings, is that we're not yet so developed to the point where compassion uh, is the rule of the day. Mm. Uh, uh, To put it in the psychological terminology, compassion is not yet a reliable stage of development in many of our families. I think maybe I'm biased by my work as a clinician as well as working in addiction, but I, in my notes, I put in most of our families, it's not, it's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I talk in groups, I just came from a group right now at Beginnings with the men that I meet every Wednesday afternoon. And I would, I had to pose this question to them, and I oftentimes do, um, how many of you would characterize your early home environment as being one that exhibited acceptance and affirmation mm-hmm. and compassion? There would not be very many hands raised, yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. and so... Uh, uh, and we'll, t- we'll, we'll talk more about how that can actually correlate to distress leading to addiction uh, later on in today's podcast. So when I say it's not yet a reliable stage, I need to make a distinction then between a stage and a state. <clears throat> hmm. uh, uh, a state could be this. If we talk about it in terms of, uh, let's say, acceptance in your family, mm-hmm. you, might have, you might have memories, Odie, and I certainly do, of acceptance or not in your family in single instances where you were really held up and affirmed, that would be a a state. A state is temporary or uh, momentary. A stage represents, if you think of a stage, it represents a solid uh, plateau. So you can have a single state that doesn't really represent the plateau or the stage. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is to move from individual states of acceptance to a constant stage of acceptance. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you had me confused in the beginning because I'm like, well, that kind of sounds like the same thing because for me, like, the stage is just uh, it's a set platform mm-hmm. and a state, it's kind of like, well, you're set in a certain state for, but yeah, the way that you placed it. Yeah, yeah, I hope, I hope to make it clear. I could probably do better with this. If you think of a state as temporary and a stage as permanent, that's right. a start. Okay. Um, let's talk about it this way. Let's talk about it in terms of cognitive development. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if if you come to me, no, I'll use my daughter Amanda. Okay. My my daughter Amanda, when she's uh, seven or eight, is beginning to become become acquainted with and actually begin to master addition and subtraction. She can mm-hmm. do that. And eight or nine, ten, she begins to be acquainted with multiplication and uh, division and so on. Mm-hmm. And so she's learning, she's learning how to operate with, with basic arithmetic. If, and so she's at a certain stage of development that can mm-hmm. do that because a younger child is not able to do that. Okay. If you go to a three- or four-year-old, I've got a four-year-old grandson. He's not yet capable of doing that. It's just, mm-hmm. It takes, takes developing enough 
mental capacity to be able to op move to a stage where you can do arithmetic. Mm -hmm. But let's say that daddy comes in, me with my daughter Amanda all those years ago, and says, that's very cool that you can do addition and subtraction, Amanda. Let me introduce you to algebra. <clears throat> and so, and, and she says, well, what's algebra, daddy? And I go, well, here, just look at this. X plus Y equals Z. In fact, X divided by, y, uh, divided by Y equals 1 over P. And I start doing that kind of stuff. Uh, Amanda wouldn't look at me and go, that's very cool. I don't understand that. Teach me how to do that. Mm. She would look at me and say, Daddy, I think you've lost your mind. I'm really concerned about your mental health. <laughs> it looks crazy. Yeah. And so at her stage of, let's say, arithmetic, moving to the next level of that level of complexity, that's actually more than the next level. It's a few levels up. To move to the level where you can operate with algebra, mm -hmm. if you think about it, if, 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 uh, if we're working with one plus one, <clears throat> one bottle plus one set of notes equals two something, right? Mm -hmm. That's concrete. If I give you an X and a Y and mm -hmm. say that that leads to Z, there's not an X and a Y. It's actually an abstract idea. Right. X symbolizes something. Right. Y symbolizes something else. The capacity to think symbolically doesn't come on until we're 12 or 13 mm -hmm. if we're fortunate. Mm -hmm. And so Amanda's not going to look at me and go, that's cool, teach me that. She's going to look at me, it doesn't make any sense, because honestly, she's not at the stage of abstract thinking. Mm -hmm. She's actually at the prior stage, which is referred to as concrete thinking. Mm -hmm. She can get bottles and notes. She cannot get X's and Y's, and that comes on later. <clears throat> Much to parents' dismay, because that's the onset of adolescence. Because <laughs> children can be really sharp at that point yeah. with flexing their new muscles, with being able to think abstractly and so on. So, so... Uh, a stage represents an achievement that's more or less permanent, mm -hmm. and it's pervasive. Right. A state is temporary, located in time, and uh, can can uh, evaporate. Okay. E evaporate like yeah. that. <clears throat> Got it. Let me tie this then into this topic of talking about shame and development. <clears throat> is that I'm just going to use you as an example. Mm -hmm. We could Go use me it. as an example. You may have grown up in an environment where you, let's, let's say you grew up in an environment where you had plenty of acceptance and affirmation. Humor me, humor me. Let's say you had a formal foundation of self-esteem right there yet, mm -hmm. and you felt accepted. Right. So your foundation or your stage was that. There could be momentary states, mm -hmm. events that would happen where somebody might call you a name. Mm -hmm. or you might be punished unfairly. Mm. And if you've got a stable stage of development, that would be the anomaly that would not factor into the stage. It would just be, okay, that's an individual state. And so the greater center of gravity is the fact that you feel accepted. Mm. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's almost like, it's almost like having, the way I just visualized it right now, is having a steady stream or a pond mm. that that's a good flows one. very nicely mm -hmm. and just like a pebble is being shot in. Mm -hmm. Just ripples, but then it's that's perfect image. That's a great image. That's great. The stream keeps going. The stream yeah, it's going. Exactly. Well, we can flip this around, and this might be something you'd agree with more. But let's just say that you grew up in a different environment. Okay. Let's say you grew up in an environment where the more constant stream, in this mm -hmm. case, was of negativity, okay. judgment, rejection, uh, not really being seen or understood. I think both you and I can identify with that. Oh yeah, Joey. Absolutely. You in that. Yeah. And so you could have individual pebbles into that stream. Mm -hmm. You could have a friend say something nice. You could even have a good day with a parent or a sibling. Mm -hmm. But if the constant stream is of negativity, mm -hmm. a single positive pebble or even a few of those, what does it do? It'll cause a ripple, mm -hmm. but it will be temporary. And soon enough, the stream goes on and no one mm -hmm. remembers the pebble came into it. Okay. 
So we just invented a new image. Yeah. <clears throat> it's the Martinez Weathers <laughs> image of psychological <laughs> development. I can see us right now in the headlines. <laughs> so let's work with that image for just a second. Now, okay. let's, so we, since we've been talking about family relationships, mm -hmm. one of the things about shame is that it will locate. Uh, so let's let's go with the, let's go with the latter image. So okay. we, we've been exposed from early development on to a negative stream, a stream of negativity. Okay. And not surprisingly, we internalize that. We begin to view ourselves that way because, after all, that's what our significant environment does. If you think of an image of a mirror, what's mirrored is negativity. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so if we talk about low self-esteem or constantly being insecure about connection to family and other mm -hmm. people that love us, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. That we'd inherit that kind of lens. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 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 the the next statement is this is that shame will tend to locate then more often in our closest relationships in adulthood. So not mm -hmm. we're no longer in childhood. Mm -hmm. We're in adulthood. The river is still streaming. Unfortunately, the river is still streaming with negativity. And and um let me ask you, why would it be that, for example, that you might be more upset? with something that your wife says to you or a parent says to you than what the gas station attendant said to you today. Why would that, why, why, why would there be any difference? I would immediately guess because with parents or a spouse, I, I'd have more of an intimate relationship with them than with yeah. you know, a random gas yeah. clerk. So it's exactly. Just, so. I'll never see that person possibly again. So it's just like it doesn't get whatever. under your skin. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't get under your skin. If you think about it, the, this river, this stream that we're talking about, it got laid down in the most intimate relationships, just what you're mm -hmm. saying, with mm -hmm. those that, that, that uh, were charged with caring for us and the ones for whom we had the most love, the most mm -hmm. caring, the most vulnerability, the most need. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that, that a relationship that is less intimate, it's not going to cut down so deep. It's going to hover over the stream. Right. But a relationship that goes down into the stream, right into the core, mm -hmm. like our central partnerships, including marriage, right. it's much more likely to evoke whatever the stream has in it than mm -hmm. those relationships up here. I'll right. give you an example. I've talked about it here before, I believe. Thank you. Uh, we have a comment. I'll get to that in just a second. I've talked about a very typical uh, uh, clinical scenario across my career has been somebody coming in, uh, I, let's say a, a, a heterosexual couple, let's say mm -hmm. husband mm -hmm. and wife, and the husband's sitting down and saying, you know, I don't really have any problems with anybody except for my wife. <laughs> in fact, she's the person without whom I might be perfectly happy. Mm -hmm. It's just that she's in my life because I married her. <laughs> And if we apply what we just said, is that mm -hmm. shame and uh, the stream comes up in our most intimate relationships, the response to that is that that is the way that it goes. In fact, it's very likely that you would experience more conflict or more of the stream mm -hmm. in your most intimate relationship, in this case with his wife. Right. And so it's, it's a mistaken inference to go, well, therefore my wife is the problem. Mm -hmm. No, it'd be, therefore I'm most intimate with my wife. Right. And yeah. so it's not to say there can't be problems in the relationship, including with the wife, but it's more than likely that whatever vestiges from that early stream are still in that person's life, mm -hmm. your life, my life, they will come up in a, in a, in a close relationship like a marriage. Mm -hmm. And so I have to help couples with this is to right. realize before you demonize your husband or wife, before you divorce them today, mm -hmm. can we just talk about the fact that probably you don't have this with people that you know casually at work or gas station mm -hmm. attendants? Yeah. And they'll go, yeah. And I'll say, I want you to understand that the wounds that were laid down earliest on developmentally 
more than likely have come up in your marriage. Can yeah. we talk about those wounds so that we can make sense of it if there are patterns from the past that are coming up now? Does that make sense? So yeah, far? that makes perfect sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. I've convinced you. Yeah, you've convinced okay. me. I'm on board. Okay. okay. <laughs> Thank you. Whew. We have a comment. Let me let's check this out. Uh, is it two different individuals? Same person, thank you. I just want to read this out loud. I feel I'm going to be on opioids for life. I'm two years away from Oxycontin. My life has completely changed and everyone loves who I am now. But I am still taking an opioid, an opioid called such and such. I'm abusing it, but nothing serious and I can control it. I don't feel guilty, etc., because I'm not using it to excess. You know what I'd like to do is I'd like to respond to that separately. I, I do want to respond to that. I'm not sure. And sometimes I can tie it into where I'm going with this. I'm not sure I can today, and I'm afraid it's going to take us off track. But I want to honor the question. Can I ask Austin a, a favor? Could you, uh, could you forward that to me? And I promise that I will respond later, okay? And if it comes up, an application comes up later for me that ties into kind of the direction we're going, I'll do my best to tie it in. Let me read it, read it one more time to get it inside. I usually can arc over to content, so give me just a second with it. <clears throat> I am going to try. I'm going to try that, and I'm also going to have Austin forward that to me so I can respond more thoughtfully rather than on under the gun. <laughs> is that one of the things that we're talking about here is relationships and where they get laid down for us. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to talk about the brain for a second. I, we talked earlier about a medical perspective. We're both going to be doctors for just a moment, medical doctors. Is that <clears throat> the emotional center of the brain is primarily located right between my ears, our ears. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and so most of our emotions uh, are routed through the uh, midbrain. It's, it's the midbrain between our ears. Uh, our connection to others, including compassion and communication, are routed primarily through the forebrain. That's the frontal lobes, the frontal cortex. And one of the things that can happen, I'm not saying that this person is suggesting this, but one of, the is, one of the things that can happen in active addiction, I've been addicted, you've been addicted, we've been addicted to various substance of behaviors. And so we know this personally, and I certainly work full time with addiction. One of the things that can happen in active addiction to virtually any behavior, which we've talked about, or any substance, mm -hmm. is it can actually reduce the capacity of the frontal cortex to operate. The term for that is hypofrontality. And what that means in English is the part of me that can be compassionate and uh, have empathy for another person and, and love another person and receive love from another person is compromised by virtue of addiction. And so what happens, addiction itself is primarily a midbrain phenomenon. If you do a brain scan on somebody in active addiction, the frontal cortex more or less goes offline and so shows up as dark in a brain scan. And what will be very activated will be the reward center of the brain, which includes the emotional center of the brain, which is in the midbrain. That will get very active and show up as bright red. And so one of the things that can happen in, a, in, in active addiction that does impact what we're talking about mm -hmm. is to the extent that I have this river that we were talking about of negativity, mm -hmm. Maybe on a good day with full frontal cortex, I can put some brakes on my fears and my anxieties. But virtually any addictive behavior, including with substances, will disinhibit the frontal cortex. That means it will make it go offline mm -hmm. and it will activate the midbrain. And when the midbrain gets activated, I had a supervisor, Bonnie Badenoch, who talked about it's like 
It's like a bag of rats and opening up the rats. The rats are running in the basement. That was the image I've never forgotten. That. It's like the rats, or if we talk about Odie's image of the stream, the stream runs now unimpeded. And if that stream especially is filled with trauma and longings that have never been met, there won't be any way to process it. Uh, or it'll be, you'll be limited in your ability to process it by virtue of the addictive behavior. And so it's a, it, there is a way to tie in any comment about addiction. I want to support anybody who's found sobriety for sure. And the idea of continuing on with another, uh, I, I assume another opiate from what this individual said, the risk of that would be is that you'd be risk losing this part of your brain in terms of being able to stay in connection to another person because connection requires this part to be on board. And what you're left with then in relationship, and we all know this, just think of a time that you've been really mad. Mm in a relationship with someone you care about, anytime you've been really mad, is that in that point, you're having basically a midbrain reaction, a fight or flight reaction, and it will oftentimes override any caring or concern for mm -hmm. the person, mm -hmm. hence we'll be aggressive. Yeah. We'll be aggressive, only later to regret it. The part of us that regrets it later is the forebrain coming back online. But in an active fight or flight reaction, chances are there's very little room for empathy or concern. And so what we communicate are razor blades. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so it's much more likely to do that in addictive, uh, in addictive brain, an addictive state. And I don't literally have to be high. It's like if, if I'm in a state of, if I'm in a, if a state of mind where I'm constantly using addictive behaviors, my brain is basically operating out of hypofrontality, whether I'm high, hungover, or even not using for that day because the brain uh, it, it really is compromised by active addiction. It sometimes takes weeks to get over, it'll take a week or two to get over an active addiction. If I'm addicted to opiates, it'll take me a week or two to get over the acute withdrawal. It can sometimes take weeks or months to get over what's referred to as post-acute withdrawal. And in post-acute withdrawal, you can count on me moving in and out of being able to access my frontal lobes, mm. which is why the mood goes like this oftentimes in early recovery, and also why you have burst bouts of, uh, of anxiety, of aggression, of impulsivity. All of that is, is the fact that there's no brakes. There's only the accelerator. And the, the, the midbrain is really the accelerator. I hope that that answers at least, or at least ties in a little bit of what you talked about. And uh, later I'll get back to you with more details in response to your whole question. Thank you. Thanks for submitting that. <clears throat> well, I've already kind of moved into talking about some of the rest of this, is that, yeah. is that, uh, is that that stream that we're talking about, especially if we've experienced trauma, is that those wounds, those will get evoked in our closest relationships. Mm -hmm. And if we have longed for acceptance, those longings will be evoked in our central relationships. And so, uh, uh, what, let me mention this. One author, um, a developmental psychologist, uh, Daniel Stern, wrote about this in terms of, he said that we have these grooves in our psyche. He called them rigs. R-I-G-S. R-I-G was uh, an acronym for, you're going to love this, representations of interactions that have been generalized. Hmm. Don't you love that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no wonder he calls it a rig. The idea of a representation is that we develop an inner mental expectant, uh, expectation, mm. uh, a representation of multiple interactions and the idea of generalized is that we take those multiple interactions and we bring them to new situations. That all, that's all that generalized means is bring it to a new situation. So for example, if you grew up with a river in your family, and I certainly did in mine, mm -hmm. that includes some mix of things, then later on you get married 
and I get married is that what will happen is that some of those old patterns, mm -hmm. I prefer to think of them in terms of blueprints or templates. Yeah. Those old templates will get activated in the current relationship mm -hmm. and actually it won't feel like the past. It'll feel like it's going on right now. Mm -hmm. So now it's my wife yeah. or my friend, whoever it is. It'll be somebody that really matters to me. And it could well be that it's a stream that's been going for your whole lifetime. Mm -hmm. as, as my same supervisor, Bonnie, used to tell me, she said, Bob, the amygdala does not have a time stamp. And when she talked about the amygdala is one of the um, uh, uh, regions in the, uh, in the midbrain that has a lot to do with our apprehension of fear and mm -hmm. threat. And so if I'm threatened right now in a current relationship, think of you with your wife. Mm -hmm. She says something or there's a look or a tone of voice <laughs> or a silence. Mm -hmm. It can activate where your heart picks up like this or maybe your anger rises like that. What Bonnie meant by that, there's no time stamp. You don't go, oh, this must be bringing up something from the past. <laughs> None of us do that, yeah, yeah. except on an exceptionally good day. What we do is it's you that's doing this to me. You're the problem, and I need to fix that right now. <laughs> and we have various ways of confronting that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that reminds me of uh, certain situations that I've had with, with my wife as well, of um, just having certain situations where I'll be sharing something that is important to me or vulnerable for me to share. Yes. And then she has uh, a tendency to to interrupt, but yeah. she doesn't do it on purpose. It's just her personality. Mm -hmm. She's very distracted. Okay. And so I'll, I'll get upset and yes. I'll let her know. And then um, I'll just let her know, you know, it's it's not that you get distracted, but just understand that it's, I've told her this, that it's difficult for me to be yes. vulnerable yes. because that's how I, just how I grew up. Yeah. Uh, yeah not being able to share yeah. certain things. And so uh, just exactly what you're mentioning right now just reminded me of those yeah. situations yeah. where, yeah. yeah, it does come up. It's not her fault. It's just that yeah. I'm not used to showing this side yes. of yeah. my yes. it's a perfect, personality. It's so. a perfect example. In fact, what you're modeling, Odie, and talking about it mm -hmm. is uh, is kind of the opposite of, of that kind of instant reaction because you're actually, you are in a sense, bringing a timestamp to it. You're going mm -hmm. to your wife, you know, this brings up stuff for me when you're distracted mm -hmm. that goes back all the way to my childhood of where there's certain things I couldn't bring up. Mm -hmm. You're doing that is really the height of consciousness and it's a gift. I mean, I, I honor you. In Thank that. you. It you wasn't know. always like that. No, so. <laughs> no. In fact, the way it starts off for many of us, and it takes a lot of work to get to where Odie is with this, mm -hmm. is we start off with uh, where we'll project blame. And it makes sense. Is that is that let's, let's if I can use this example? Is yeah, okay? absolutely. Is that mm -hmm. your wife gets distracted and immediately goes into a painful place for you? Oftentimes, what we'll do is we'll project blame onto the person. How dare you do that? I can't believe you do that. You're doing that on purpose. How messed up are you? Know all this kind of stuff comes out, and we're basically projecting out all of the pain that we have inside. Mm -hmm. Uh, one person calls it evacuating the affect. We're evacuating all of that negative emotion mm -hmm. onto our partner in this case. And your ability not to do that really speaks highly. Mm -hmm. Another term for this process, not the process Odie's talking about, but how it can mm -hmm. oftentimes go, one of the terms is psychic equivalence. And psychic equivalence connotes this, is that in this moment, what's going on psychologically between us is absolutely equivalent to something I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And in psychic equivalence, I can't separate the two. Right. It was, it, it, you are able to separate the two. If you're not, if your wife then becomes the mm -hmm. problem, and in fact, if she were to ask you, you know, in a state of psychic equivalence, she might ask you, honey, did I touch a raw nerve? And you go, no, I don't have a raw nerve around this. This is you. you 
you yeah. know, we've all done that. <laughs> that would be that would be evidence. That would be exhibit A of you are in psychic equivalence. <laughs> it's a mode of consciousness for sure. And one of the goals of any form of psychotherapy or coaching is to help people move from that kind of instant making equivalent what's going on mm -hmm. with your pain to realize it's more nuanced. There's more layers mm -hmm. like you're doing with her. And we'll get to later why that's important in terms of mm -hmm. healing that because you've got a relationship with your wife mm -hmm. that is the most profound leverage you could have mm -hmm. for healing that old river. But we can't do that if we uh, shoot it in the foot. <laughs> you know? so, yeah, so that's a, that's a beautiful example and it's actually a really honorable example of uh, how to bring consciousness into a relationship and be transformed. <clears throat> One of the ways this goes, and I don't know what your history is with this, I do know not what mine is, is unfortunately some of these early templates or, or uh, uh, blueprints that are laid down, they lead us to be what physicists call uh, strange attractors for certain kinds of relationships. And all, all they mean by strange attractor is what people call a black hole. So that gets us to black hole. Do you have any thoughts, dear Odie, about, have you heard of a black hole? What is a black hole? I know that it's, there's nothing in it, and anything that comes across it pretty much ceases to exist. Yeah, 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 I, that's good, that's good. I, that, there's, I, had, I had somebody, I asked somebody this week about this, was a black <laughs> hole, and it was me, he gave me a whole dissertation on that. I, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about a black hole. It is that, one of the terms used in physics, uh, physics about black holes is that they're strange attractors for everything. In fact, I just found this out with this guy. They attract not only matter, but they attract light, which is why they're black, hmm. is that they have the ability of sucking everything into it, including even radiation. That's why they're dark. Hmm. They don't, dark, light can't even get out of a black hole, hence black. Yeah. Hole. <laughs> okay. And so neither one of us are physicists, but right. we get the idea. And what we're suggesting here is if we go back to your image, now we're going to mix <laughs> metaphors terribly, is that if there's a river that's been laid down again and again by, by thousands or you know, tons of interactions, is that we create certain kinds of expectations. I mentioned rigs earlier, and it manifests as a black hole is that we'll tend to take anything, like your wife's distraction mm. gets sucked into the black hole of your trauma. Mm. The same for me. And so we'll find ourselves, this is, this is perverse, we'll find ourselves sometimes drawn to relationships that repeat that mm. event. In other words, we might find ourselves, in, in, in our cases, attracted to a partner who actually touches that very spot. Mm. And, and the thought there, this dates back to Freud, is that there's a wish to heal that. Mm -hmm. And the wish to heal that is maybe with my wife, your wife, yeah. you could work this out. And I think you are working it out. And so it wouldn't do to work with somebody that doesn't touch that vulnerability. Mm. You could have a relationship that's not close and you never have to deal with it, but it would never go away. Right. You'd always be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So in, in an intimate relationship, why not find somebody you can work that out? And so Freud talked about this. He called it the repetition compulsion. And if we make it sound less, less gnarly, that we're compelled to repeat something for the sake of healing. Mm. I don't want to live my whole life as a black hole, always scanning the environment for somebody to offend me. Mm. Or the same with you, somebody to be distracted so I'm hurt. No, I want to work this out. And so you've, you've done that. You're doing that. You're yeah. doing that right now. So uh, I have a question about that. Is that similar to uh, people who, who kind of tell themselves and tell others, why do I continue to date jerks? Mm -hmm. 
Is it similar to that? Yeah, there's a way to, there's different ways to talk about this. Let's see, let, <laughs> if, if, if you think about it, if you and I have gotten used to a certain, let's, we'll, we'll call it the stream of negativity. Mm -hmm. If you and I have gotten used to that, that's been our daily bath, mm -hmm. our daily nutrition, our daily oxygen for a lifetime, at least it feels normal. Mm. Not to say that it's pleasant, but it right. feels normal. And what's that phrase? Better the devil you know than you when you don't. I think it's something like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a devil we know. Right. And so there's a sense of uh, that's the status quo. That's what's familiar. And so we, we you could uh, you could say that that I'm attracted to what it is I'm familiar with. Mm. That would be one thought. Hmm. Freud's amplification of that, the one I just shared about repetition compulsion, would suggest not only am I attracted to what I'm familiar with, but I might be attracted to some way work that out with this person. And that's okay. a slightly different nuance because yeah. that means I'm not comfortable staying in that stream of negativity for the rest of my life. Will I have to face that like you are? Right. Yes, absolutely. I'll have to face risking discomfort to work on this, which is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I like very much what Carl Jung, uh, who was Freud's uh, best student, he was his heir apparent, Jung had this to say, and I've always used a river image or a stream image in this, Jung said that what you're doing, mm -hmm. which uh, is, he called it, he called it the opus contra naturum. And that's Latin, but it's easy to break it down. Opus is, a, is like a, 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 a piece of music. Mm. It's a piece of music. It's a, it's a, it's a work of art. An mm -hmm. opus is a work of art. So if opus is work or piece of art, contra in Spanish is against, I would assume. Mm -hmm. It's against. So, so far, work against. And naturum is exactly what it sounds like. It's nature. Mm -hmm. And so doing what you're doing is a work against nature. So if it's been a stream of negativity that's gone this way, mm -hmm. you actually have to enter into the stream for the healing, but you're going upstream. That's the mm -hmm. opus contra naturum. You're going upstream. And that's always the sense I've had of what Jung meant, mm -hmm. is that in order to, in order to transform Mm -hmm. this stream of negativity, I've got to get wet, <clears throat> and I don't want to. I'd right. like to avoid that, and some people do. Some mm -hmm. people say, I'll just avoid intimacy for the rest of my life. Wow. But if I want to risk, if I want to, if I want to change, I have to risk getting wet, mm -hmm. and the only thing is I've got to swim upstream because if I swim downstream, it's business as usual, and that's not working for me. So when you stop your wife, it'd be easy to go off on her or shut down. There's lots of ways you could respond to that, but when you say, honey, this is what happens to me when you get distracted. It touches a place inside. It's very hard for me. Mm. And can we try this differently? Mm. And when you, if you can approach it in that tone of voice, you don't aggress against her. You don't shut yourself into like a turtle-like shell. Mm. You're actually being vulnerable. That takes a lot. That's what yeah. I mean by courage. That's okay. really, it takes a lot to do that. Yeah, it, it wasn't easy. Uh, no. I shut down at first and then later, like mm. half an hour <laughs> later. Yeah. But um, yeah. So the theory, I guess, behind what you mm -hmm. just mentioned is that someone will continue to, to date until they find somebody that they can heal that part mm -hmm. of themselves mm -hmm. with that person. It or, took me most of my lifetime. <laughs> or they'll completely just ignore it and uh, live by themselves for the rest of their uh, lives. There's, so there's a third option true. you didn't name. I, okay. one, one option, is, what was the first option? 
it's they'll continue to date until they find somebody. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I feel like you and I both have. Right. And yeah. so, so I feel really blessed in that. Yeah, it took absolutely. me a long time to do that, but I had a pretty deep river to work through. <laughs> there was it had a lot of momentum. Okay, so that's that's one option. I'll get to the question in just a second. That was that's one option. The second option is to what give up and just head don't yeah. get wet. Yeah, exactly. A third option is get in the stream and just uh, go hell bent for for leather. And what that means is that people will get in the stream and they'll just act out that mm -hmm. old pattern of negativity forever. And so plenty of wow. people will stay in a relationship yeah. where they just beat the living daylights out of each other psychologically or sometimes physically. And so one way is to go mm -hmm. with a fight reaction. That would be that. Mm -hmm. Another is the flight. I'm going to flee relationship. The other is the path of consciousness, which is what you're talking about, mm -hmm. the opus contra naturum, which is getting in there and going upstream. And so I, there are at least those three options for sure. Mm -hmm. The only game in town, as far as I'm concerned, is the one that you're living, the right. one that you're talking about. That's the only game in town. Cool. There's another comment that's come in here. Let me read this. I think you're saying the way to heal is through relationships. That makes sense, but what about for people who are more introverted and don't naturally do a lot of connecting? It's a very good question. My pause. <laughs> I've thought a lot about this question. My pause is this. Uh, I have to tell you something. I, I, I think this is from Angela. It's a great question. Uh, uh, I had a supervisor years ago, this is 20 years ago, uh, Lolita Sapriel in Santa Monica. She was one of the uh, two or three best supervisors I ever had. She might be the best supervisor I ever had. We were in a supervision group, and this question, this issue came up that you just mentioned, Angela, is what about people that are more introverted or for, pe for people whose fate it is, it is uh, it's not their fate to in Lolita's terminology, to individuate within relationship. That is to become a self within relationship. Mm -hmm. And here, this is the example she gave. She was working with a client, I never will forget this, she was working with a client, a male client, who said to her, <clears throat> he said, uh, when you're talking to me uh, as my therapist, you make the assumption that the sun always comes up in the east. And I think Lolita said, Yes, I do make that assumption. He says, it doesn't come up in the East if you live on the North Pole. Hmm. I never have forgotten that. And his point was, he was a very bright client, obviously, and also a client that was speaking about there are other ways to become a self that it doesn't, or, or even to heal from our trauma than relationship. I'm so biased towards relationship, and I will own that. That's why I paused and left, because I feel busted in a, in a way that Lolita felt busted is that, you know, most of my work is around emotions in the context of relationship. And because of the way I'm wired and because of my own path of mm -hmm. stream work, I've spent a lot of time going downstream and getting out of the stream and working on going upstream mm -hmm. nowadays, for sure. Most of my work has been in the context of relationship. I don't want to hold out that that's everybody's path, mm -hmm. I really. So in, in the spirit of integrity and in answering you, I think it's on a continuum. I think for some people it's more primary uh, relationship. I think for other people it's secondary. For other people it's tertiary. I mean, I just don't think, I, I do believe that the patterns are laid down primarily relationally. Mm -hmm. There's a, a genetic component that has nothing to do with relationship, but we're talking about the environmental component. And I feel like that environment is radically informed by our attachment relationships, that's for sure. But how we work that out, I think that's radically individual. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a function of temperament and uh, you might even say destiny. 
you know, that there's that just people have different different paths. So I hope I'm honoring the, the depth of the question. It's a very potent and important question. I've been pondering it for a few decades myself right now. Thank you for the question. Let me shift back to this conversation about stages and states, and then we're going to try a couple of exercises. <clears throat> so what we're suggesting here about shame is that, re recall our definition of shame, a threat to social acceptance coupled most often with a threat to self-esteem, is that if that's my early environment, or if we use Odie's image of the stream, if that's what I've, that's the stream I've only, I've only ever known, the chances are that I will develop a permanent stage, back to that image of a stage, a permanent uh, a state of mind, I shouldn't use the word state or get into a problem, a permanent stage that is what psychology refers to as shame prone. Mm -hmm which is just back to the black hole image. I'll be prone to take almost any interaction into a place that makes me feel bad about myself mm -hmm. because after all, that's the stream I'm familiar with. Yeah. Does it stand to reason? Does that make mm -hmm. sense? And so as we said, there might be exceptions to that shame, even from, from the family that you grew up in mm -hmm. or other people that have been significant in developing this stage, let's say, of, of uh, uh, feeling threatened around self-esteem. But those exceptions won't be enough to reverse the stream. It, I love your image. The pebble will make a brief splash and then it will be gone. Mm -hmm. It will be gone. And so we're talking about a shame-prone stage that, that is likely to develop, which begs the question is, what, Sam Hill, do you do about this? <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue this in the context of relationship and out of uh, honoring Angela's question, realize there are exceptions to this for sure. And we could talk, for example, I have a very strong sense for example, that spirituality and one's relationship to God could operate, you know, uh, you know, I've read and maybe many of you have read enough about desert hermits, for example, where deep transformation occurs in a cave or in a, in a desert uh, hermitage that I don't believe that, that relationship is always necessary. I do believe it's possible to individuate on a desert island. Mm. I pref strongly prefer that not to be my fate, okay? <laughs> But I think there are other people, and I have friends that I think would prefer that faith. Yeah. So out of honoring that, I also want to say that I think it's also possible to heal. And I know in my own life, and probably for you too, Odie, mm -hmm. in my own life, there's been a tremendous amount of healing that's come through art and creativity mm -hmm. and beauty and nature, none of which presume relationship necessarily. Uh, most of the music that I've composed over the last 35 or 40 years, no one's ever heard. I don't play it for other people. I do it for me. And it, it has a healing quality of itself. It's why for me, any sense of God is so intimately connected to creativity. I, mm. It's like that's God's entry point into Bob Weather's life in a very powerful way. So I want to open up to the possibility of all kinds of pathways to healing from trauma besides relationship. Mm. But I am going to focus on relationship, mm. having offered that proviso. <laughs> When trust and compassion can be established in a relationship, you begin laying down, uh, it starts with pebbles, mm -hmm. you've been laying down pebbles, but if you throw enough pebbles into the stream, you can divert the stream. Mm -hmm. You can create a dam that diverts the water. And in the image that we're using, if you turn around the stream and start going upstream and have a good supply of support and oxygen, let's say, to do that, you can accomplish a reversal of direction. And I absolutely believe that's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a relationship in which the foundation of trust is established. And so you can move from, what I, we, we talk here about unshaming, you can move from unshaming states, 
where I have a temporary experience of you accepting me, mm-hmm. eventually to stable stages where I actually develop a stable stage where the river has been reversed, mm-hmm. where I now have self-compassion, where shame existed before. It takes, it, in, this, in, the, in this example, using relationship as the context, it takes a lot of oxygen in a very sturdy relationship to accomplish that. And mm-hmm. you're, you're attempting to accomplish that in your marriage, is mm-hmm. that you can transform the direction of the water in your relationship, and it requires a tremendous amount of commitment and courage on the part of both you and your wife. Mm-hmm. True? Yeah, absolutely. Insofar as this works, we're going to tap in. You guys, would you put it in your calendars right now? We're going to tap into, I'll get to this next question in just a second. I'd like you to open your calendar. I'd like you to do one of these little pop-ups. And I want you to have something that pops up in 20 years. (laughs) I want you to put Odie Martinez in there. And we're all going to check in on Odie in 20 years, okay? It takes a while. You're off to a great start. In 20 years, it's highly likely and I would pray that it would be absolutely a, a, a given that you will have earned security mm. where in the past you might have felt insecure. And that is the technical term that's used in the psychological literature is earned security. And so where in the past I've been insecure, and that would be the, uh, so what we call it, the stream of negativity, in relationship, in the context that we're talking about, and let's add all the other resources we just mentioned of art and beauty and creativity and embodiedness and uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 one's relationship to God, uh, spirituality, etc. Is it any uh, some combination of these? This is my own view: is that you can transform things from insecurity into security, and that is an earned security because you're working your fanny off to accomplish that, mm-hmm. and with grace. Mm-hmm. In relationship and from God, you can actually accomplish earn security. Mm-hmm. That transformation. There's a ton of research. If you go to Google between for the next 20 years between now and when we check in with Odie, <laughs> just do a Google search for earn security to read more about it. There's a ton of research that suggests that this stuff really works. Hmm. Let me pause. There's a comment or question that came up. <clears throat> uh, to follow my earlier questions, I believe there are ways to deeply connect with people that are not the usual mode. So, like in nonverbal artistic ways. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, what I want to say is that you might even argue that the latter connection, not the usual mode, but in nonverbal artistic ways, and if we expand artistic to include anything that involves a creative interchange with somebody else, mm-hmm. is that there's a fair bit of research to suggest that it's that connection. It's not the words that I say to you or that you say to me, or let's pick you and your wife. It's not the words. When you tell her what you tell her, mm-hmm. like what you just shared with us, her response is communicated in her response. Mm-hmm. And her response is a full-bodied response. Does she pause? Mm-hmm. Is there tenderness in her eyes? When she speaks, is there love in her voice? Is there compassion or not? And all of that informs how you integrate that experience. Mm-hmm. And much of that is nonverbal. In fact, many people would argue the biggest... The most influential parts are not verbal, Mm. and it is certainly a creative interchange. We've already talked about the opus that this is, the opus contra naturum. It is a creative opus that you're doing there because you're trying to create something new. Mm. It's not just create. You're trying to co-create with your wife Mm -hmm. something new. Um, And so I I really want to affirm the comment behind that question, which is that I honestly think that most of this transformation happens uh, in unusual ways Mm. of relating. Mm-hmm. The usual way of relating for Odie with his wife would be to go with the stream. Mm-hmm. And you could fight with her, mm-hmm. or you could distance from her. 
stay dry. <laughs> but you choose to be wet and not go with the flow. You yeah. choose to go against the flow. Um, and I think that that is, that is absolute creativity. Mm. Yeah. Um, what are some practical implications of this as long as we're talking in the relational realm? Is one thing is that we have to begin to give ourselves the privilege, the right to choose for healthy family. Mm-hmm. You're doing that with your wife. Yeah. Uh, you and I were born into a world and we didn't choose for our blood family. And mm-hmm. I assume that you have great loyalty to your blood family and I do it with my blood family. Mm-hmm. But there's some limitations there that if I don't also, as I grow into adulthood, choose for relationships where I can transform some of those deep patterns, including those that were laid down in my family, I'll be hamstrung for the rest of my life. And so when by choosing healthy family, I don't mean you have to reject your family, but you mean they need to embrace a bigger picture, whatever it takes for healing, mm. uh, to heal these patterns. It's going to take something other than that which laid it down. In the best of families, mm. what you just said with your wife, in the best of families, you could go to your mother or father, brother or sister, and say the same thing. Listen, when you're distracted or when you don't affirm me, this is what happens. Notice I said best of families. Did you guys see the nonverbal here? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're kidding, right? No, I don't know your family, no, so I yeah. don't mean anything. No. And and so it, it just depends it can, because maybe I can have healthy family transformation within my own family. That's that's an incredible gift. But if not there, then the question is where? Because I need it. I need mm. it for sure. I have a bias here owing to my own uh, background. Is oftentimes coaching or therapeutic intervention with a, a therapist can be a minister, can be a coach, mm. can be a good teacher. I think it begins there oftentimes. It'll begin with somebody who sees us maybe outside of the norm of the stream, of the stream of negativity. And we have, a, we have an individual state experience. That felt really good. A pebble goes in the river, and then we forget it, and mm-hmm. life goes on. Mm-hmm. But after a while, you have enough of those. You think, you know, I want more of this. And so maybe I want to spend more time around this teacher mm-hmm. or this coach mm-hmm. or this minister or this therapist. And then any good therapist worth his or her... Uh, 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 weight and gold is going to recommend that you begin to generalize from therapy to your marriage, mm-hmm. to other relationships. And so therapy can also oftentimes be, begin, be a, 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 maybe an initial experience of a sustained oxygen-rich environment. Mm-hmm. But the goal is not to stay with that therapist and have that be the rest of your life. The goal is to fan that out into the other areas of your life mm-hmm. and to build that into friendships that you can Build that into marriages that you can. Build that into family that you can, but to find that. And I want to include, in light of the earlier comment, to include that in any other expressions that end up developing that. I know that for me, my exploration with music for 40 years, recording so much music that I've done alone, that's not unrelated to what we're talking about. It's really following what it is that I feel like wants to come through and getting that out in the early days on cassette tapes and more recently on (laughs) CDs and even more recently in terms of MP3 files. But I've got a ton of journaling that I've done and uh, it's all about beginning to develop a relationship to myself where there is love and affirmation acceptance. And I've gotten better at that. (laughs) I've gotten better at that. Let me ask four questions as we wind up for today. You can write these down, and I would encourage you to reflect on them after our podcast in a a journal. And I'll give you my email address later where you can write me if you care to. I invite you to write me with reflections that you've had, and I'll respond to you. First question, how have I been shaped in my own life Mm -hmm. regarding this river that Odie's talked about, the stream of negativity? And let me put it in a different frame. How have I been shaped in regards to self-compassion? You could just as easily say, how have I been shaped in regards to shame? They're, in a sense, opposites of one another. 
So how have I been shaped in regards to self-compassion? In the deep depths of, of the dark night, do I uh, love who I am? Do I feel who I am is worthwhile? Do I have meaning and purpose and value for my existence in this brief time that we're on this planet? <clears throat> to the extent that I do, that's wonderful. Who has helped shape that? Mm. To the extent that I have limited access to that, and then we get more into the zone of shame, what influences have shaped that? Just to ask those questions. You talked, it was implied in what you said earlier, mm -hmm. to realize that something's been laid down here in terms of me being vulnerable, mm -hmm. and it has, doesn't make it easy for me to be vulnerable, honey, to your wife. Right. Need you to help me with this. Mm -hmm. Second question. How have I been shaped regarding compassion to others? Remember how I talked earlier that one of the things that can happen with this river is that we can blame others. <clears throat> we can blame others. Freud called it displacement. Is that I'll be hurting and then you'll walk on and I'll just displace all that pain onto you. Hmm. And so I'll blame you or shame you. I'll make you feel bad. And for a moment, maybe I don't feel so bad because after all, I put you down and showed you, didn't I? <laughs> it's very temporary. It's a temporary mm -hmm. state for sure. <clears throat> well, let's ask ourselves, how have I been shaped regarding my compassion to others? Do I have a, a response of compassion? Maybe I have a response of projecting of blame and to look at that. And then to look at how that was shaped. Was, was compassion modeled for me towards others in my family and other significant relationships growing up? Or was judgment and rejection, uh, uh, aggression, were those modeled? Fourth question for further reflection. Where, where might I find new possibilities for transforming the direction of the river, what we've been talking about today, the stream of negativity. Where might I find oxygen to reroute the river? <clears throat> we talked about this in terms of blueprints or templates, talked about rigs, talked about a black hole. All of those are the same thing. Where might I find new possibilities in terms of transforming old ways of seeing, being, feeling, reacting? <clears throat> And the fourth and final question, no, because there's a fifth one. The fourth question, <laughs> can you imagine into what self-compassion might feel like? I'm going to ask you, can you imagine what it would be like? Can you imagine what it would be like to have your wife never be distracted? That would be awesome. Yeah, just, just to allow <laughs> ourselves, think about that. That's exactly right. Imagine what it would be like to have... Whatever it is you imagine that you would want that would be fully oxygenating, fully supporting, fully nourishing, imagine how good that would feel. I think if we don't have an image of that, then we can't really move towards it. So I think it, mm -hmm. it, it may be an impossible ideal, but let's start with an impossible ideal and move towards that, mm -hmm. okay? And related to that, what might it feel like to have full compassion for others? If I have judgment in my heart towards others, if that oftentimes is my first reflex, what might it be like to look at somebody and move towards them the way that I would want people to move towards me? In other words, with compassion. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having a soft, connecting heart as your, as your first and primary reflex? <clears throat> I don't know what question number we're on, but I just want to say this. I, I, I want, want you to ask yourself, can you allow yourself to imagine? Can I allow myself to imagine 
what it would be like to live in a different flow than that stream of negativity. Can I imagine living in a world where I'm not so vulnerable to that black hole that we were talking about earlier? Can I imagine extending that same compassion or grace towards others as I imagine towards myself? <clears throat> I want to say that there is hope. I want to say that there is hope. And as you journal and reflect on this over the next hours and days, I encourage you to do that. And the hope is this, is that we might actually be able to choose our own healthy family. You might be able to choose your own healthy family to begin choose for relationships where you can do what Odie's talking about. That's um, like a minimal daily requirement. If we're going to turn around the stream is to find uh, what psychology calls a facilitative environment. Mm -hmm. And I think that can include all the things that we've talked about. How might I create a healthy environment in which I can be creative and be my best self? An environment in which I can reach out to my relationship to God for resource and be supported in that. How might I be able to be in an environment, in a relationship, in a family, like Odie just modeled for us, where I can bring this vulnerability and it not be spat on, mm -hmm. it not be shunted aside, but be responded to with open heart and in kind, and, and, uh, and that I might have hope of transforming that. Mm -hmm. That's where our hope is, I think, to me, is that we can create anew. I love this idea of earned security, and it really is our birthright. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe some of us have been fortunate enough, in fact, some of us have been, to have security as built a built-in given for our lives. But mm -hmm. if you haven't, and that's not been my fate, I don't, I'm not going to speak for Odie, is that we have a chance. I don't, uh, till, the, till my last breath, transformation is going on. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. I just remember this line from a poem, and there's a comment. There's a line from a poem by the 13th century Persian poet, Jalaluddin Rumi, where he just says this, copper doesn't know it's copper until it's changed to gold. Copper doesn't know it's copper till it's changed to gold. And so as long as you're going this direction, copper doesn't know it's copper. But if you get a taste of gold, like what you just modeled for us, mm. then copper knows, you know, I'm, I'm changing, man. I'm becoming gold. <laughs> and I, I think gold is our birthright. Mm. And if it's not given you, if you haven't been given security, by virtue of your life circumstances, that we can earn it mm -hmm. and that we have to we have to participate courageously like what you've modeled for us today, Odie. Yeah. But it that 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 is a possibility strikes me as utter grace. Mm. I like how you put that. That reminds me of there's been instances to take it in in a sports side of things where I've had like a, either a really good game of basketball or of mm -hmm. soccer mm -hmm. and then somebody coming up to me after a game and just saying, hey, you did really good today. You know, what'd you do different or whatever? And just like, you know what? I did do pretty good today. Yeah, but there's other, 90% yeah. of the time, it's yeah. mostly just like, eh, I did okay. It's yeah, not that great. Yeah, yeah. But, and then one day it'll be 89% and then 88%. It's very gradual, but there'll be a process. You're on the right track. There'll be a process of transformation to where maybe one day even the center of gravity will change and you'll no longer be headed that direction, be headed a different direction. It takes a long time to turn the Queen Mary around, mm. but you can turn her around. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There was a comment. There was a comment. Thanks, Dr. Bob, for your introducing self-compassion practices uh, so many months ago. Working with that has been the most helpful. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, that's Angela as well. Thank you, Angela. Yeah. 
we'll come back to this uh, again and again. I just, I really feel like in the context of, from a psychological perspective, looking at addiction recovery, I'll summarize with this, looking at addiction and recovery, is it from a psychological perspective, I believe that are talking about it, whether we talk about it in terms of self-compassion, or talk about it in terms of shame and how to manage and reduce that, how to unshame ourselves. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's absolutely central. One of the gifts, it seems like to me, of the vulnerability that cracks open with addiction mm-hmm. for you and for me is it can open us into the possibility of wanting, it's almost like it mandates it. You know, when you hit bottom, mm-hmm. when your marriage is threatened or your livelihood is threatened, mm-hmm. you, might qu- you might really be woken up to questioning the direction that stream's going. Mm-hmm. You know what? Doggone it, I'm not going to continue to do that. And that might be the opening into trying something new. And I know that for me, Angela and anybody else that's listening, I know that for me, and you all know this, is that the self-compassion practice, we have different versions of it, including gratitude practice, especially the forgiveness practice. You can go back and look at our archives and see a number of presentations on both those topics, both gratitude and forgiveness. They're absolutely essential to me, enough so that I I uh, aspire to practice them every morning before I start my day. It's, it's essential. It's not, it's not dispensable. And like with your image right now of 90%, each day shifts at one degree or 1%. And after, and one day you wake up and you realize I'm no longer, I'm no longer caught in the same stream. I'm actually going a different direction. That's mm-hmm. the hope. So thank you, thank you. Um, you know, we're going to continue this conversation next week. The title of next week's presentation is "Growing Up in Recovery," and I don't mean that to come across as "Let's all grow up now" or something. I don't know. I don't. I don't mean that in a negative way, like like a parent saying, grow up, Odie, or grow up, Bobby. I don't mean it in that way at all. Thinking about growing up, you know, we talked about stages today. Mm-hmm. And even that image that I used earlier of a stage of development that understands arithmetic but can't abstract yet, and then eventually can manage algebra, that's how I mean growing up, is that is there a way for us to talk about maturation in our recovery so that we grow across stages? Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably implied in what you're talking about, is that initially, early on, you and I both were reactive. And so when your wife would say something to you, mm-hmm. you may or may not have had the capacity to step back and say, honey, mm-hmm. we need to talk about that. You mm-hmm. might have been more reactive. I'm assuming that you were, and I certainly vouch for that for myself. Yeah. But as we grow through stages, and this is what we'll be talking more about next week, as we grow up in recovery, we actually get more and more capable. Of the, the rich get richer. You'll get better at this. Mm-hmm. As you practice this muscle, you actually get better at it. Mm-hmm. And as you get better at it, you actually have more energy or impetus to reverse the stream. And so mm-hmm. that's all I mean by growing up. So we'll be looking at that last week, uh, uh, next week. Uh, if you have any more questions or comments, I invite you to write me at www.drbobweathers.com. You can go there and there's a, a, a comment section. Just write me and it will come to me to my personal email. So I invite uh, any comments, reflections. If you do the exercises that we talked about, answer the questions, I'd love to respond. And I'm invite you. I want to thank all of you for joining us. Uh, Austin, on your birthday, this is a blessing. He came on his birthday, everybody. So thank you, Austin. You do a fantastic job. Odie, I really appreciate your presence yeah, today. You. Always do. I really appreciate it today. Thank you. Your story is seminal, and your image is, I'm going to steal it from you. So I'm going on notice. I'm stealing it from you <laughs> right now. It's a great image, a great experience. Thank you all for joining us. I hope you'll come back next week and join us again. We'll be back next Wednesday, same time, 3 p.m. Pacific time, uh, looking at growing up in recovery. Blessings. Have a good day.